All right. Well, as we settle in, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll just go ahead and get started. All right? Father, we praise you that you are a God who saves sinful people, because without that truth, we would all be lost and dead in our sins. And so we just pray that as we open your word together and as we consider how to wisely care for the hurting women in our church, that you would equip us, uh, that you would give wisdom, that you would prevent me from saying anything that does not honor you, and that... Um, you would just use what's shared here today to uh, make our churches places that are more compassionate and helping these women to more fully understand the truth of the gospel. So we trust you to use this time as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to talk today about ministry to sinful women. Um, hi, I'm Kendra Dahl. I'm a sinful woman. So I think that's, that's about the extent of my qualifications to share on this. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of what I'm saying today is really a testimony to the care I've received in this church. Um, it's very tender and sweet and near to me, so I'll probably weep through the whole time. So there's my warning. And sometimes if I just say that up front, then maybe I won't cry. So we'll try. Uh, so first, just some definitions as we think about what am I talking about when I say ministry to sinful women? Um, ministry is one of those words that I think we all define in many ways. And I think all of those definitions are what we're talking about today. I'm talking about the ministries of pastors caring for the women in their churches. I'm talking about the ministries of lay people coming alongside other hurting lay people in their churches. Um, I'm talking about small groups and from the pulpit. I'm talking about life on life in counseling sessions. I think all of that is part of what we're talking about this, or is it this morning? Today. Um, so when we talk about ministry, I've got in mind really broad uh, ways that this can be applied. Um, also, what do I mean when I say sinful women? Uh, we'll talk about that, but up front I want to say that I'm talking about more the perception of these women that we're talking about, not that I think they were more sinful than the rest of us, and I hope that will be really clear as we get into the word together, but... Um, I'm talking about, a good definition would be shame-filled women, uh, women who have believed that they have sinned beyond rescue, that uh, they're deeply flawed. Shame is about our identity. It's believing I am unworthy of love and belonging. I am a sinful woman. Not I have sinned, but I am sinful. Um, it's believing you're unclean, exposed, like you're wearing a scarlet letter. Those are the types of things that I have in mind when I'm thinking about sinful women. Um, women who maybe are, have had abortions, they've been victims of infidelity, sexual assault, sexual abuse. Uh, women who are struggling with addictions have walked through same-sex same attraction, uh, pornography, promiscuity. Um, there is a whole range and this is a topic that is so nuanced because you'll see in what I just listed, we've got issues of sin that women have willfully engaged in and sin that they have been victims of. And we have to be so careful as we talk about these things because we're going to talk about calling these women to repentance and embracing the forgiveness of, that's found in the gospel. But we have to know that in some cases, these women feel like they have done something wrong to deserve this sin against them, and, and in their case, they, it, it's, not, uh, it's not that forgiveness that we need, except that it's helping them to walk towards forgiving 
uh, those who have sinned against them. So all that is to say there is just no way that I can cover all of the nuance um, when we're talking about these. So I just ask for your grace and your uh, wisdom as you're listening to these things to know I'm not offering you a one one line way, here's how you're going to do this. I'm offering you hopefully some thoughts and perspective to help you consider how we can wisely and compassionately come alongside these women. Uh, so I said I am a sinful woman, and I, and I mean that both, uh, both that I am a sinner who desperately need, needs Jesus, but I'm also a woman who identifies with some of these stories, um, some of these situations that I shared. And I'll share more of my story uh, as I go, but I am intimately familiar with what it looks like to live with shame, and I am also intimately familiar to what it looks like to experience the hope and healing found in gospel community, and so it is just such a privilege to get to talk to you about this. Um, but I'm not a counselor. I've had lots of counseling, so I feel like that kind of qualifies me. Um, but I did actually interview a couple of counselors as I was preparing this, and um, there are some great books, too, that uh, have been helpful and informative and as I've been learning more about this topic. So if you want notes or resources or things, I am happy to get your email address when this is done and I can send them your way. So we're going to look at Luke 7. I'm going to read 7, 36 through 50. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't it so good? Um, let's just observe a couple of things from this story. So Jesus is dining with Pharisee. This woman comes in, and she's described, This woman of the city who was a sinner. Um, my understanding as I study this is she's probably a prostitute. She had a reputation, that definition, who was a sinner. It's like she's known for her sin. Um, and when you look at her actions, you got consider the evidence of her shame. She uh, walked in quietly behind him. She's down at his feet. Um, 
and I think, I think we have to think about how we recognize shame in others. How do we see these women in our congregations? How do we identify um, who's hiding, who uh, is lashing out in defensiveness or anger or activism, who's uh, people-pleasing, going to do everything that they can to fill in, uh, to make up for their sin, who is still stuck in their sin. Um, shame is uh, manifested in all of us, no matter the background or experiences that we have. But I think that uh, the point is there is uh, identification that can happen as we are watching. Are we paying attention as these people come in? Um, and then we see the Pharisee, he responds. I love this. Uh, he thinks to himself, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. I think that exposes so many uh, responses of people. We hear people's stories and we're like, whoa, what kind of person is this? Um, but then Jesus answers. So Simon thinks this and Jesus answers. So he proves, I'm a prophet. I just read your mind. Um, and he gives this uh, story, this little parable about the two debts. And then Jesus turns toward the woman. So, you know, at first it's frustrating because he's just talking about her. Uh, so he tells the story and then he talks about the woman. He's just talking about her and it's like, do you, she's there. That feels really uncomfortable to me. But then he turns toward the woman. He says to Simon, do you see her? Pastors. Women in your congregation want to know, do you see me? And especially for these hurting women who have been deeply wounded by men in their lives, they want to know, do you see me? And Jesus says, I see her. But Simon does not see her. Simon only sees her sin, her reputation. He sees propriety and what he thinks uh, proper dinner should look like or proper worship should look like not letting your hair out and wasting this ointment he sees uh, he misses this woman but Jesus looks past Simon's assessment and he sees this woman and he points out what she's missing he sees her repentance she's weeping she's at his feet she heard Jesus was there and she came across town and she came to his feet he sees her faith he sees her love for Jesus. And Jesus says, she's forgiven, therefore she loves much. This means not that she's forgiven because of her love. It means that she's going to love because she's forgiven. She loves Jesus because of his forgiveness of her. And this statement is an indictment of Simon, the Pharisee. He thinks that he's been forgiven little and he, therefore, he loves little. That's what Jesus' story says, right? And then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus forgives her and he heals her. We'll talk more about that. So there are, I know that was just fly through, you guys preach on this, it's good stuff. But um, there are a few relevant things here that I think we can take when we think about how to care for sinful women in our churches. Um, we're going to think about them in kind of two phrases. First, there are no small debts. And, and so therefore, we must care for the sinful women in our congregations with humility and with empathy. And second, sinful women need both forgiveness and healing. And we must care for sinful women in our churches compassionately and wisely by bringing them to Jesus. 
So first, there are no small debts. We must care for sinful women with humility and empathy. Now, I grew up in the church, um, but by the time I was 13, I was sexually active, and by the time I was 16, I got pregnant, and I had a, an abortion uh, without my parents' knowledge, and then I moved to a new town, I went to a new school, I went, joined a new church, got involved in the youth group, and uh, hid my shame and tried to pretend like everything was okay, and eventually that caught up with me in college, um, and I gave up. I gave into a life of flashing lights and loud music and strangers' beds, and uh, I would try. I would go back to crew for a little while and then just say, I can't do it, and I would walk away again until I eventually just walked about together. Uh, I moved to Chicago after I graduated from college, and uh, three months into being there, I got pregnant again, and I thought this time I, I couldn't go through an abortion again and thought, maybe this is it. You know, I'm going to finally get my life together and prove I can do this. I can be a single mom. I am strong. I am an independent woman. I'm going to move home with my parents. Um, so I did. And um, by God's grace, a couple years later, I landed in River City and I heard the gospel. And um, I'll tell you more about that later. But uh, I am a sinful woman. And a friend gave me this passage and said, See, you have a great debt. So you've been forgiven so much, so you should really love Jesus. <laughs> that was actually not helpful. <laughs> and not, I don't think, what this passage is about. The problem with this line of reasoning is it perpetuated my shame because it, it kept me isolated from community. It's like, yeah, you are a big sinner. But good news, there's enough grace for you. It wasn't good news, because I still felt like I was wearing this scarlet letter. I still felt like I couldn't belong among people who were the clean. I had a friend I'd, I walked through some hard stuff with, and she would always talk about the clean people, the clean women at church. And we're, we're the unclean women. And that is how so many of us who have these stories, how we think. It's like, you don't get it because you're just like this great Christian woman who's always loved Jesus, and so you don't know what it's like. And in some ways, you don't. But the point of this story, of what Jesus is saying, is there are no small debts. Simon does not have a small debt. That is the point. Simon's debt is great, and if he could get that, he would love much too. And that that is the point of this story, and that is the, it has to be the starting point when we think about caring for sinful women, because as long as we're thinking in these categories of like, oh yeah, you are a big sinner, we are going to fail to love these women well, because we're going to be coming at it in pride. The gospel humbles us, so we have to start with humility. If we really believe that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then we are going to be so grateful that God in Christ Jesus has made us alive. And we can then, in our humility, move towards these sisters, not better than them, but getting it, because we know the shame of our sin. We should have this perspective, but for the grace of God, there goes I. I don't know who said that, but you know, it's that, that when you hear this woman had an abortion, but for the grace of God, that's me. When you hear these people have suffered these traumas, but for the grace of God, that could be my story too. And it's in that humility 
that we can identify with these women. If we haven't grasped this, generally you're going to have two things that happen. One is empathic failure. Like, we are going to fail to empathize. Instead, we're going to either respond in judgment, like, oh. So we're going to reinforce their shame. Oh, my, yeah, you are a big sinner. Or we're, we're going to be uncomfortable with their stories, and we're going to be like, you're fine. Jesus forgave that. You're good. Like, just come on with me. Um, or we're going to fear. So empathic failure, we're going to fear to enter in. We're going to feel like, I don't know how to handle this. I'm totally out of my league here. This is way bigger than anything I've ever dealt with. Um, and both of those reveal that we really haven't understood the gravity of our debt against God. We should be able to identify with that sin, not because we have done the same thing, but be, we realize that all sin is a grievous offense against a holy God, and we are guilty. So I asked a couple of counselors uh, if there's a unique need for women like this. Like, am I totally off base to think that we should think about these women a little differently? Because we don't want to perpetuate the shame. We don't want to confirm to them, yeah, you are other. You need special help. Um, and both of the counselors said yes and no. And so we'll talk about, yes, there is a need for specific care, but the no is that the gospel is the same for all of us. And the gospel is sufficient for all of us, regardless of what our sin is, what our backgrounds are, uh, what our suffering is. The gospel is the good news for every single one of us. And, and we have to start there. If in humility we have acknowledged our debt before God, then we can humbly walk with our sisters towards the cross together where we find our compassionate high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So in our humility, then, as we're humbled before the gospel, that opens the door to vulnerability. Now, I know people hate the word vulnerability, and sometimes for good reason, um, because a lot of times vulnerability is like, I want a safe place to just say everything I think or feel and not be corrected in it and uh, not be judged in it. And, and sometimes we know in the body of Christ we're failing one another if we're not speaking into each other's vulnerability. Uh, but the reality of shame is that it breeds lies and it causes us to hide. And vulnerability opens the door for that, for truth to be spoken into those dark places. And so we need to invite these women to vulnerably share their stories with us so that we can speak truth into the lies that have been wired into their brains over the years as they have processed the pain and suffering that they've walked through. Brene Brown is a researcher on shame, secular researcher, but she's got good stuff. Um, she says that the less people can talk about it, the more likely there's still shame there. And so uh, that is even an indicator of where people are in their struggle and in their walk towards healing, is how are they able to talk about uh, their pain. Now, there is something to be said here about, I was a compulsive sharer, so I wasn't really a hider. I was like, I went, I'd go on a first date and be like, just so you know, I had an abortion when I was 16. Um, because I felt, for me, my shame was like, you better just know all this about me because you're not going to like me once you find out later, so I'm going to just get it all out there, out front. Um, and there are people where the struggle is, is like, it's the oversharing. And, and both, there's both hiding and oversharing in the sense of like, they both indicate shame. This is part of my identity. This is ingrained in who I am. You can't know me unless you know this about me. So I said humility opens the door to vulnerability. But what I've talked about is that we want to help women with humility and empathy. Um, 
So humility and empathy are linked together because empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. It's feeling with people. And so that has to happen through vulnerability, right? We have to be able to hear how people are feeling in order to enter in with them. So Brene Brown defines true empathy as the ability to recognize a person's perspective, the ability resisting the urge to pass judgment, uh, recognizing the emotions other, in other people, and then being able to communicate those things. I see that you're feeling sad. I see that you're feeling ashamed. Um, one of the best, th there's a couple of great lines that I, I think you should write down in practice. Uh, one is, it's understandable that you feel that way. That is like, there is empathy. It's, it's validating, like, I get why you would feel that way. That's really hard. The other is, I know it's like down here and you're not alone. And the way that we can say that, the way we can truly empathize is because we've understood our big debt. And so we can say, I don't know exactly what you're going through because I haven't walked that exact path, but I know what it's like down here in my shame and you're not alone. Empathy doesn't require that we share the experience of people, it requires humility. I think of it like glasses. We are all wearing glasses. We all have these glasses made up of our experiences, our temperament, uh, our theology, everything. It's, we wear them and that's how we view the world. Like Paul Tripp says, we're all interpreters, right? We're always interpreting our experiences through our own glasses. And empathy is being willing to acknowledge, I have my own glasses on. I'm gonna take them off, I'm gonna try to put on yours. I might not do it perfectly, I might do it kind of awkwardly, but I'm at least acknowledging that I am seeing the world different than you are. And for a moment, I'm gonna try to see it how you see it. I'm gonna share in that with you. We're not trying to minimize, you know, there's, you've, you've all probably heard the stories of like, yeah, my mom died. Yeah, I know what that's like. My cat died last week, you know, not empathizing. That's not what we're going for here. We're not trying to say like, I understand what it's like to be raped and I know exactly what that feels like. No, you don't guys, sorry, love you, you don't. And so, that's not the empathy we're talking about here. We're talking about the empathy of getting at the root of saying, I know what it's like to feel ashamed, and you're not alone in that. But despite what Brene Brown's research says, we do know that empathizing and vulnerability, those are insufficient to help our sisters and to help ourselves with our shame. Because we do know, deep down, we are sinners. I, our identity is, I am a sinful woman. I am, on my own, apart from Christ, I am unworthy of love and belonging. And we have so much to be ashamed of. We, we can't just say, I'm going to empathize with you. Our goal in humbly empathizing with one another is to be able to move towards the cross of Christ, where we see our shame problem met. Christ bore our shame on the cross. So as we humbly engage in empathy, we have this opportunity to say, I get it, because I'm dead. I was dead in my trespasses and, trespasses and sins, too. But that's where we get to the but. Because we've engaged humbly, we can say, but God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together in Christ. 
by grace, we've all been saved. We get to that good news, and that good news is actually good news when we've recognized the weight of our sin. So humility leads us to vulnerability, which leads to empathy, which ultimately gives us an occasion to celebrate the gospel with these women and to be reminded of the gospel ourselves. So if we're to care for the sinful women in our church, well, we have to remember there are no small debts, and this is going to help us to engage with humility and with empathy. Next, we need to realize that sinful women need both forgiveness and healing. Uh, earlier in Luke, in chapter 5, we've got the story where Jesus heals the paralytic man. His friends come and lead, or let him down through the roof, and he came to him for healing. And it says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. It's not exactly what he was looking for, you know? It's like, I'd like to walk. That would be nice. Um, but Jesus knew that this is the man's greatest need was to be forgiven of sin. So he saw his paralysis, but he, he met his greatest need first. And everyone's like, who's this guy? can forgive sins, right? And, um, and so he heals him. He deals with his physical need as well. It's the same thing with this sinful woman. He sees her need, and he pronounces her forgiveness. What this woman needs is forgiveness. But then, when she leaves, or, or at the end of the story, he says to her the same blessing that he says to so many other people whom he physically healed. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think it, this is so sweet that the Lord did not just forgive this woman. He healed her. So our greatest need for sinful women, I hope we, or for all of us who are sinners, is to be forgiven of our sins. Um, and this is often so hard to accept. We can spend our whole lives trying to pay for our sin. You know, I um, had an abortion, and then I had a baby, and I thought, this is it. I've, I've made up for it, you know? Um, and then when I heard the gospel, the Lord uh, confronted me with the weight of my sin, and uh, the depths of his love for me in Christ. And I thought, I don't have to pay for it. It's all good. And then I met my husband, and we got married, and I got pregnant. And it was like, this is weird. This is uh, a baby I want, I'm excited about. And um, then I miscarried. And it was like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense. Like, it was... I, uh, it's time to pay for that, you know, this, uh, why wouldn't God take away the baby I wanted? And I had no idea that I still thought in those terms, um, and God, in his grace, used that miscarriage to expose that I'm still trying to pay for my sin. I'm still trying to prove I can be the clean, the clean woman. I can be the good Christian mom. I'll be the, I'll be the submissive wife and the, oh man, uh, I'll be all the good things, you know, to make up for the sin in my past. And I think there are so many women where that's what we're trying to do. You, we're trying to make up for it. We're trying to say, we're trying to earn our place at the table. Say, like, we can, we can belong here. So forgiveness is the starting point, but we don't exactly move on from it. It's not like, okay, good, you got forgiveness. Now we'll move on to healing. It's that they both have to go together. We constantly have to return to the forget, 
forgiveness aspect. And, and in my case, it's like, okay, I don't have to pay for that. Good. And then a week later, it's like, why am I trying so hard? And I think that that's true for all of us. It's not just the, us big sinners, uh, because we're all big sinners. Uh, but I don't know if I restated this point before I turn my page to say that sinful women need both forgiveness and healing. And what we need to acknowledge is that for many cases, there has been a trauma that has happened. Um, this is hard. This was really hard for me to grasp because I uh, know that I sinned against the Lord in having an abortion. Uh, and so to say like that that was trauma is kind of like, no, trauma is like you go to war and you see people die and it's not the same thing. But think about sin. It devastates our body and soul. It's not what we were created for. It is traumatic. So this isn't meant to minimize people who go to war and struggle with PTSD, but it is to acknowledge that trauma is more than just these narrow definitions that we have. And for a lot of these women, they have experienced trauma. And so when we think about that, then you have to realize, think about PTSD, how we think about it. We think like a um, person in the military hears fireworks and they have like a flashback to war. You know, we're familiar with those scenes or we think about PTSD in that way. But there are shame triggers for so many women who have experienced these traumas. For me, you know, having an abortion is like having a really heavy period for six weeks. So I went to high school, I went to cheerleading camp, I'm meeting new friends, I'm trying to pretend everything's okay while I'm heavily bleeding more than I can contain. I have this distinct memory of being at a friend's house and realizing I'm gonna be, I'm bleeding and I need to get out of here, I have nothing. And I had gotten a ride there, I was far from my house, but I was panicked and I just said, I gotta go, and I took off and I ran home with blood trickling down my legs. Guys, that's traumatic. And so when I miscarried, it was like, this feels a lot like the same thing. When I have a heavy period, sorry guys, I didn't know there'd be so many men in here. Uh, it's like a trigger for me. Sometimes I'm triggered every month, reliving the shame and having to run to Jesus and be reminded that he has paid for this and I don't have to keep living in this shame. For other women, in a lot of these cases, their trauma was at the hands of men and male leadership is a trigger for them. And so understanding that that's a real thing, that there are circumstances, there are friendships, there are situations that trigger the shame in these women, help us to understand like, you should never think, you should be over that by now. Someone said that to me once. You know what the most helpful thing my counselor said to me is like, you'll probably deal with this your whole life. And you know what is so sweet about the Lord's healing, I'm jumping ahead, is that as I continue to deal with it every month, it has become an occasion to marvel at God's grace to me in Christ, to reflect on his transformation in my life, to remember that girl who was running home with blood trickling down her legs and realize I'm not that girl anymore. So just because those shame triggers will always be there doesn't mean uh, that that healing has not occurred. But helping to un understanding that healing is required is such a crucial part of this because if we think everyone just needs to know they're forgiven and then they'll be good, then we are missing 
a greater depth of healing and freedom that these women could experience as they begin to understand the gospel at deeper and deeper places in their heart. And that's the thing about needing healing is that there are layers. That's what I, I learned. Okay, I heard the gospel. I broke up with that boyfriend that I didn't need, and I was just me and Jesus. We're free to go. This is all good. I'm healed. And then I uh, met my husband, and we're doing great, but then that miscarriage stopped me in my tracks. It's like, okay, there's more here. And then we're good for a little while. Okay, doing well. And then it's like, why am I yelling at my kids so much, and my period's really heavy, and what's going on here? And it's like, oh, there's more here. And then I'm good again for a little while. And then, you know what I'm saying? I, I think that we think healing, it's like forgiveness, poof. Healing, good. And now we're good to go. And the reality is, in our homes, as we grow up, especially if you've grown up in the church or um, have had these loving home experiences, you probably have some more shame resilience. People have varying degrees of shame resilience. And so this is not uniform. You know, I might struggle more because of, my personality and my temperament and my experiences than somebody who maybe walked through a similar experience but had a loving home that they could go to or uh, different support through the process. I had a loving home. I just was stuck in my shame and hiding. Um, so the point of this is just acknowledging trauma. Think about the sinful woman in our text. She was a prostitute, but in that context, how did she become a prostitute? Do you think she just woke up one day and was like, this will be a great job. I think I'll do this. No, she was likely abandoned by the men in her life whose job it was to take care of her. And so, yes, she fell into a life of sin, but whose fault was that? Yes, she's responsible for her sin, but she's also sinned against in a deeply grievous way to end up there. And for so many people, that's the the truth of their story. It's like so often... People who are abused as children become abusers, right? Women who are victims of sexual assault become promiscuous. It's baffling to think, why do we continue in the things that uh, hurt and shamed us? But it's like we, it becomes so part of our identity, and the trauma solidifies that. We don't know anything else. This is what, how, we, how we live. So, so many women in these situations in this type of trauma They've been broken from their voice, their power, and their community. And I think acknowledging that there's been a trauma that's happened, you've been broken from your voice and your power and your community, helps us to see what healing looks like. How can we help these women come to Jesus so that he can restore their voice and their power and their community in him? So when we step back and we can see the bigger picture of what's going on, that our sisters need both forgiveness and healing, then that's going to help our empathy move towards compassion. Empathy is, I share your emotions. Compassion is, I want to help alleviate your suffering. And this is given to us in the gospel. Jesus empathizes with us, right? He comes to earth as a human being. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our every struggle. But he doesn't just feel our pain. I love this description of God in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us, uh, shows compassion to those who fear him. And it shows, how does he show compassion? Psalm 103 also lists out these benefits. Forget not all his benefits. It says, he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. 
He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So he's an empathetic savior. He sends Jesus to be human with us. But he's a compassionate father who's not, he did that so that we weren't stuck in our sin, so that we could know all of these benefits. So women need both forgiveness and healing, but Jesus is the source of those things, not you. So to be compassionate with these sinful women is to see and acknowledge their suffering and to want to get in the mess with them and fight for their healing. But what that looks like is fighting to help them move towards Jesus. That means we have to be patient. That means that we're in this for the long haul. Like I said, it lasts a lifetime. And it doesn't just look like one day someone is healed. Um, when, when someone is still stuck in their shame, at least what this looked like for me, is that as those triggers come up where I'm, I'm triggered from some, for something shameful in my past, I just shame myself and shove it down. Shame and shove. That's, that's my M.O. And what progressing in healing looks like for me is that as I'm triggered in those things, I confess to the Lord. Both, not like I have to keep confessing my sin so he'll pay for it, but I invite him into the pain with me. Lord, I'm remembering this terrible thing from my past, and I'm sad that that's even part of my story. And I'm honest with him to say, sometimes I'm so frustrated that I can't just forget these things, or I'm so, I'm angry that this is part of my story. Where were you? Why did that happen? But when my triggers become an occasion to turn to the Lord, to confess to him my sin, even in my remembering, it also becomes an occasion to know his compassion. The Lord has compassion on us. He remembers we're but dust. He remembers that we're human beings who can't forget sometimes and who can't remember his faithfulness. And, and so as... I experience that shame instead of shaming myself and shoving it down, and then it comes out in other ways, usually yelling at my kids or my husband. Instead, I turn towards confession and compassion of the Lord. And that process of confessing and experiencing the Lord's compassion happens with the help of his people. It happens as I have those friends who I'm free to be vulnerable with and say, I am struggling today. I know I should believe this, but I don't. And they say, let's go together to Jesus. Let's confess to him that you're feeling that way. Let's know his compassion together. And so I think healing looks like not that we've landed somewhere, but it looks like being in a, a stage where you're learning to confess to the Lord and to know his compassion rather than just shaming ourselves and shoving it down and dealing with it on our own. So if it's Jesus who provides this healing, the question is how? And I, I think I've shared a little to, I am convinced that it is through his word. I love, I'm going to just read it because I love it. Psalm 107. Uh, that's a good one to go to with these women. P.S. But Psalm 107 uh, Chapter, or verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways, 
And because of their iniquity suffered affliction, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He, s- he sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. You know, it's the word of God that heals. Now, this is dangerous because we all know people who slap Bible verses on like band aids. That's not what I'm talking about here. Um, Somebody slapped the sinful woman story on me like a Band-Aid. See? You've been forgiven much. But later, when I miscarried, and I came to this story in my Bible reading plan, it floored me because I realized Jesus didn't tell this woman to pay for her sin. And here I am trying to pay for it. Maybe if I have a baby that I'm happy about, all will be forgiven. But that's not how it worked. He didn't say, well, go clean yourself up, leave your job, get all better, and then come back here, and we'll see see where you're at. It's similar later. This was pretty recently um, in the last year or two that I I really struggled with (laughs) all the news, President Trump and... uh, his treatment of women and all of that's come out, um, that was like, a, it's a major trigger for me in my experiences with men. And um, I was just like, why am I raging about this? I mean, I like my, it's a disproportionate, maybe not actually, uh, reaction. <laughs> um, and so I, I sat in that for a while in, in prayer. And I was journaling and just asking the Lord and, um, and, and felt like as I'm praying, I'm a verbal processor, so I have to get there. Uh, that it was like, men are supposed to be protecting women. And then I think, who is protecting me? I've only, I have a wonderful father, and he loves Jesus, and I love him. And um, But he was a pilot, and he's gone a lot. And um, so, so I was honest with the Lord of like, that's still something that's not quite healed. Um, and then, as he sweetly does, I am a firm believer in Bible reading plans, because you don't know what you need that day. <laughs> uh, I came to Hebrews, and um, I'm going to botch it, but it, it talked about how Christ called out to him who was able to save him from death. And God didn't. He could and he didn't. And because of that, my sin is paid for. Jesus, my Savior, endured that. He knows what it's like to feel forsaken by his Father. But the truth of it, he wasn't forsaken. And so it may seem uh, obvious, uh, but in those places, that is how God's word has been applied to my heart and has brought healing in deeper layers as more and more has has been exposed. It's these truths of scripture that I've read a million times being applied in different ways. The gospel applied is the salve to our wounds. And the way that Jesus uses his word to heal is through his church. It's through the preaching of his word. It's through personal fellowship 
or personal fellowship with God in his word, but it's also through, you think Colossians 3 talks about teaching and admonishing one another. It's, it's through the one another's of scripture. You know, I said, I, I came to River City, I heard the gospel. Brett said, the gospel isn't try harder, it's try less. I was pissed. I'm like, I've been trying hard my whole life, and don't you tell me it's not about trying. Uh, but I thought, I went home that day, I opened my Bible to Romans 1. Why? Why Romans 1? And I read about people who had exchanged the truth about God for lies. And I realized who I had become and where I was. And... Um, and so I came to the, my Bible. I thought I'd been lied to my whole life. I got to read this thing for myself. Um, but I also was welcomed into a family. Uh, there's a couple in our church who just, my daughter and I just brought us in. And as I would share more and more, as I felt more and more able to be vulnerable, I'll never forget. I did my confession thing, you know, yeah, just so you know, I had an abortion when I was 16. It's like, well, how is that for an introduction? <laughs> uh, and this friend did not flinch, did not act like, did not look panicked. <laughs> she just said, I don't know exactly what she said, but I could tell you it sounded something like this. I know what it's like down there and you're not alone. And through the process of being welcomed into this family and our family, our missional community, um, the Lord helped to restore my voice and my power and my community. And there's something to be said here. I think that we'll talk, hopefully, about the role of men or women in this process. But I will say that this sister was so sweet to be part of this process, but it was also so fruitful for me to be part of their family to sit at the table with her and her husband because my views of men were so jacked up and to be part of their family and to get to hear from him uh, was such a crucial part of our healing. And I think sometimes pastors feel like, okay, this is big. Let's get a woman in here to help you. And that's so important and good. And I think that there's a really important place for that. But I think you, you have to keep in mind that there's a beautiful role of a pastor in that process, or of men in the process of helping women heal. So when we think about applying the gospel and helping women to experience he healing at deeper and deeper places, I cannot give you a formula for what that looks like. I can tell you that it's going to flourish in a, an environment of empathy and understanding of shared vulnerability, that it's not like, okay, we'll get together and you can tell me all your problems. But it's that we're in this together. We're both messy. We both need, uh, need Jesus. But essentially, this is prayerful dependence on the Spirit, knowing the Word ourselves, knowing how the gospel applies to our lives, that we are able to apply it to these women as they're sharing with us. It requires so much wisdom. My counselor friend said, the question you need to ask yourself is, what does this moment require of me? You ask the Lord, Lord, what does this moment require of me? Should I listen? Just listen? Say nothing? Should I offer to pray with them, for them? Should I share a truth from the word? 
all of those things are true or are the right answer at some point and all of them are the wrong answer at some point and they can't I can't tell you what they are I'm sorry and sometimes you're gonna get it wrong which is why it's so important that we realize that it is Jesus who both forgives and heals these sinful women when we realize that then we can humbly admit I really did not love you well in that moment and ask for forgiveness we can humbly admit, I have no idea how to help you, and I'm sorry. I want to be in this with you, and I'd like to find out how. We can uh, be given to prayer and to dependence because it's not on us. We don't have to figure out how to do this right. We trust that Jesus is faithful. I love that Paul, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't it awesome that he says, at the day of Christ Jesus? It's like, it's going to take a long time, but I am sure he's going to finish what he started. And that should be our perspective. I am sure that God started a good work in you, and he's going to finish it. And I'm in it with you for the whole, for the long haul. That's what it looks like to love these women. So I do think there are a couple of things as we close here that we need to think about for how wisdom, what wisdom looks like. First of all, we have to do our own work. We all have shame issues. Read some Brene Brown, guys. Uh, it, it will help you to grow in wisdom for yourself and to be a healthy person. Because here's what happens. When someone's shame rubs up against mine, I don't know what to do. And so I'm like, I either... We, it leads to the empathic failure I'm talking about. Either I say, like, you're fine, we're good, we're good here. Or I'm like, oh, yeah, you're... Mm. And that's evidence that we haven't done our own work. We have forgotten that we have a great debt. And then you need to have a plan, especially as pastors. There's, there's the knowledge that there are other women in your congregation who are equipped to help, not to take over, but to to share in this burden with you if that is the wise course of action. Um, or to think about how, if a woman comes to me, what's my plan for how I'm gonna care for her? What, what boundaries do I need to have in place? Um, but to be willing to enter into that will help you to do so more confidently and wisely if you've thought about beforehand what that looks like. And then we need to know when to refer people. There are professionals. And like I said, counseling has been an integral part of my healing process, and it's something that I have revisited throughout seasons. As another layer gets uncovered, it's like back to the counselor. And there is no shame in that. A lot of people, I remember the first time my youth pastor told me, you need counseling. I was so offended. Um, but now I'm like, everybody needs counseling. Uh, so there, uh, I think there's wisdom in knowing that not, I can't handle this, I need to pass it to someone else. That is a wrong way to think about referring. But how about, this is a lot, and I'm not sure how to wisely do this. I'm going to bring in someone else who can help too. And really, there is never too many people a part of somebody's story of healing. That's what it looked like for me. It wasn't just one person. It was many. Um, because the more people who know and love you anyway... Uh, help to fight those messages of shame that say, I have sinned beyond rescue, I'm unworthy of love and belonging. Instead they say, you belong here, and I see you. You're part of us. So, we, they're or done early, just so you know, I got five minutes. <laughs> oh. So a couple of notes. 
uh, just as we close, um, as you think about the fact that there are sinful women, there are shame-filled women in our congregations, and we want to wisely and compassionately care for these women, there are a couple of, of things that I think we need to consider. One is the language that we use. Um, I think this is a great example. This is a great book, by the way. It's the Bible Good for Women, Wendy Elsop. Um, but she has a footnote here. She is going through the Old Testament law and talking about the, the chapter is, is the law good for women? Um, and she says, this chapter discusses sexual assault in scripture. Please don't know that, despite my efforts to guard against insensitive or harmful words, there are likely trigger phrases and scenarios in this chapter. If you're a survivor of sexual abuse or assault, I hope you will feel free to skip this chapter. If you choose to read it, know that God sees your wounds and cares deeply for your healing. I thought that was such a great example of wise language. Um, there are real, the word whore is in the Old Testament way more than I would like. But to wisely think like there are women who've been called whores. There are women who feel like whores. To define the term, why does the Bible use this word? And, and to give some warning of like what we're going to talk about today is graphic or uh, might be difficult, but I see you. I, I love, as, an, as a post-abortive woman, I am so grateful when people talk about abortion, when they also say, if you have had an abortion, you are welcome here. This is your place too. It's not just about the evils of the sin. It's also knowing there are people in my congregation who have committed the sin against the Lord and they are welcome here. So being wise with their language is so important. And then also uh, stewarding the stories of the people in your congregation. You know, they, I think statistically one in four American women will have an abortion in their uh, lifetime or one in six American women uh, will be victims of attempted or successful rape. Like, these people are in your congregations, and some of them are really far along in their process of healing and would be happy to share their stories with others um, and would be happy to enter into that pain with someone else. And for some people, that would be way too vulnerable and painful to walk through with somebody else. I know for me, uh, five years ago, it would have been a lot harder than, than it might be now. And so um, just knowing somebody has that story does not mean that they want to talk about that story with somebody else who shares it. And it's not your place to share their story for them. And so I think wisely stewarding the stories of the people in your congregation to invite and even challenge, would you be willing to enter into this? I think you can uh, share a perspective that I lack or seeing them as a resource. Help me understand how to help this person, even if you don't feel able to. Um, but also honoring their story that it's theirs. It's their story of God's grace in their lives and that they can share when they're ready. Um, and uh, there's this phrase, we should share from a scar, not an open wound. And I think that's so important with these stories that there are women who are willing to share because they're still filled with shame and trying to pay for their sin. And um, we want to help these women share from their scars that what Christ has healed, let them share. But let's not invite them to share from their open wounds because what's going to happen is it's going to be a shame spiral for both parties instead. So... That was a lot, and I talked really fast, but I am grateful for your willingness and your interest even in thinking about this topic. And um, like I said, there are so many great resources out there. Uh, but ultimately, I hope what you heard today is that I believe the gospel is sufficient to both forgive and heal all of the people who are filled with shame in our churches. And so let's pray as we close.
Father, I am just struck once again at your goodness to us in Jesus. I am so moved by the desire of the people in this room to care for the women in their churches wisely and compassionately, and I just pray that you would honor that desire, Lord, that you would uh, give opportunities to hear the stories of those hurting women in their churches, that they would um, have the wisdom and discernment they need in those moments to care for them well, um, and that you would just bring more and more healing and freedom to the women uh, in our churches that though they know you, that they would be able to live in light of what's true, that they would believe not that they are uh, sinful women, but they are the redeemed of the Lord, and let them tell their story. We love you, Jesus, so much. In your name we pray. Amen.